Hello, and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. I'm Brad Warner. I will be your host. I am the author of Hardcore Zen, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, Zen Wrapped in Karma, Dipped in Chocolate, Sex, Sin, and Zen, and a whole bunch of other books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. This podcast is supported by your donations, and if you would like to support it, please go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main means of support, and I really appreciate your contributions. But as I always say, this podcast is offered for free, so you don't got to donate if you don't want to donate. Today's offering on the podcast was recorded on May 29th, 2018 in Vienna, Austria at a yoga studio whose name I wish I could remember because they were very nice people and they invited me back for, I think, two other visits. So uh, maybe I'll be back there again if I can remember their name. Anyway, it was really nice. I had been talking about a certain piece of writing by Dogen called The Samadhi of Receiving and Using the Self. And I had decided on this tour in 2018 that every stop I made, I was going to do a talk about this. And after doing several lectures on this topic, I felt like this was the one that really nailed it. And the next, the very next day, I put the audio up of it on YouTube, and it's been up there for three or four years, however long that's been since 2018. And I thought it was about time that it became part of the podcast. So here is my lecture from 2018, one of my many lectures from 2018 on giving and receiving the self, using receiving and using the self, that's how it is, Dogen's great piece of writing, and uh, enjoy. As advertised, I want to talk to you a little bit about Dogen, who he was, and why I think he's important. But... But I'm more interested in just having a discussion about things that are important in general. So I I think my discussion about Dogen is mainly to try to make everybody here feel comfortable about asking a question or making a comment. So I I don't know any of you, so I don't know if any of you know who Dogen was. So I'll start off with a little bit about him, and forgive me if you already know who he was. Dogen was a Japanese Buddhist monk, and he was born in the year 1200 and died in the year 1254, so he wasn't very old when he died. And he is famous for writing a piece of literature called Shobo Genzo, which means Treasury of the True Dharma Eye. And this is a very long piece of work. It was composed in smaller pieces. I guess we call them essays now. But the, the different essays were usually given a title, Shobo Genzo something. And so we know it was intended as a single piece of work. And because he died before he probably knew he was going to die. People talk about short lifespans, but short lifespans, that's just an average. People even in those days usually live to be 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever years old um, if they manage to survive childhood. So 54 was, uh, was young to die even then. So he didn't, he didn't complete it. And we don't really know exactly what it was supposed to be, but different people have arranged it in different ways, and there's now a more or less standard arrangement of Shobo Genzo. And when I first heard that there was this guy named Dogen and that he wrote this thing, Shobo Genzo, 800 years ago, I just assumed that for the past 800 years, people in Japan had been reading Shobo Genzo and knew about Shobo Genzo and that we in the West were just coming in late. Uh, But that turns out that's not true. Shobo Genzo was written and then 
I won't say it was lost, but it wasn't, it wasn't widely circulated after it was written. What happened is Dogen established a temple called Eiheiji, and that temple was fairly successful as a temple, and after he died, his successors started branch temples, and the, the sect of Buddhism that Dogen started became very popular in Japan. So Dogen's name has been known for a long time in Japan as the guy who started this sect of Buddhism. And people knew that he wrote stuff, but very few people actually read it. Uh, it, was, it was something only very serious scholars of Buddhist history or certain monks read. There was even a time when the organization that was supposedly founded by Dogen, although it went kind of crazy after he died, uh, where they tried to make it, they tried to forbid anybody from reading Shobogenzo, like legally forbid them from reading Shobogenzo. And a lot of people think that one of the reasons that they were so reluctant to allow people to read Shobogenzo was because they, they were worried, they, the monks, were worried that people would ask them to explain Shobogenzo and they wouldn't know how to explain this thing. Uh, a lot of scholars don't really believe that, but I believe it. <laughs> I think it's probably true. That's how human beings tend to act. And that's probably one of the reasons it was so obscure, because it's a very difficult piece of work. But in the 1920s, there was a scholar in Japan named Watsuji. You don't need to know his name, but that's his name. And he wrote a book about Shobogenzo, a short book about Dogen and Shobogenzo that became very popular in Japan. Uh, the, the reason it became popular in Japan is I don't know if you'll be interested, but it's interesting to me because I lived in Japan for 11 years. Uh, Japan, as some of you may know this history, but maybe not all of you know, from, gosh, I can't remember the time, it was I think from 15-something, so a bit after Dogen's time, a couple hundred years after Dogen died, until the year 1864, I think, 1860s, was a closed country. It was sort of like uh, North Korea is today. No one was allowed to come in or out of Japan, and the governments completely restricted any information flowing out of or into the country. And they did this for pretty much the same kind of reasons that North Korea does today, because they thought they could protect their culture by being completely isolated. Uh, it turns out that's not true. <laughs> uh, it, it won't be true of North Korea. It wasn't true of you know, East Berlin or East Germany or, or, or any of these countries that tried to do it, uh, Soviet Union, that never works. And it didn't work with Japan either because uh, the Americans, God bless America, came in and forced Japan to open its ports to foreign trade in the 1860s. And the Japanese did something that that was rather clever, which is they decided to modernize. They decided we're going we're gonna to figure out how to be part of this Western culture that they suddenly encountered, that they barely even knew existed, that had incredible technology and big guns and big ships and, and all sorts of things that they didn't have. I don't think they even had guns in Japan. If you've ever seen the movie The Last Samurai with uh, Tom Cruise, it's actually pretty historically accurate. I mean, Tom Cruise obviously wasn't there. But there were a few Americans uh, who, who did things vaguely similar to what Tom Cruise does in that movie, of coming in and advising the Japanese on how to, how to westernize and so forth, and, and military, military advisors. So what happened is the Japanese decided that they needed to show the world that they had things that were worth knowing about. So that's one of the ways you establish yourself as a, as a, you know, as a player, I suppose would be a nice Americanism, uh, in, in the world game. <laughs> and uh, so, so people became very interested in digging through Japanese everything, art, uh, literature, and, and all sorts of things. And Dogen became uh, 
there was an interest in proving that, that Japan had philosophy. And, uh, and they discovered Dogen about 50 years after this project began in the 1920s. And it was very convenient. And they discovered that they had this great philosopher that nobody had known about for, for uh, centuries. And so people began reading Dogen and studying him and translating Dogen into foreign languages to show other people what was going on. And so uh, now, uh, now we are in the 21st century and there are actually quite a few good translations of Dogen's writings in, in English and in German. I, I actually know somebody who worked on the, I think it must have been the first full German translation of Shobo Genzo, uh, Gabriela Linnebach. Uh, she um, lives in, I don't know where she lives, somewhere in Bavaria, I believe, it's in the south. But, uh, so, so that's available now. And, hmm, what I want to do is introduce you to this very confusing piece of work by Dogen called the samadhi of receiving and using the self. So, I decided that uh, as I traveled through Europe this year, I was going to do every lecture of, that was going to have something to do with this piece of writing of Dogen's, and maybe by the end of it, I'll be able to explain. So you're, uh, well, I guess I, if I count yesterday's group, you're the third group, no, fourth group, I guess. Uh, two groups in Finland and one group last night here who I've talked to about this piece of writing. And so unfortunately, because I'm stupid, I, when I was up in Finland on this retreat, I decided that this version, which, which I, I actually like, uh, of, uh, of this piece of writing was a bit too complicated in, in terms of grammar because it's, it's written for native speakers of English. And it also, the, the translator is trying very hard to duplicate the way Dogen wrote. So, and, and Japanese, classical Japanese is crazy. You don't ever want to try to read classical Japanese because it's all full of run-on sentences that go forever and you, you, by the time you get to the end of the sentence you forget what the beginning of the sentence was about and that kind of thing. So I, I worked on this when I was up in Finland last week and made my own translation in which I tried to fix some of that so it would be easier for somebody who's not a native speaker of English. So you wouldn't, because it's already difficult and, and if you have a, these terrible run-on sentences, you don't need that, you don't need it to be more difficult, if that makes sense. But I'll read you this version because I think it's actually well done and then maybe I'll try to stop and explain some of the, you know, break down some of these sentences a little bit so they're not so crazy. But let's just, uh, let's just listen for now. Uh, now, all ancestors and all Buddhas who uphold Buddha Dharma have made it the true path of enlightenment to sit upright, practicing in the midst of self fulfilling samadhi. So the, he's say, saying self-fulfilling samadhi. Self, here's what it is. I took the time to write it out. Uh, these are the actual Japanese characters for this uh, jijuyo. So, so this is self, and it's actually a picture. I'm going to teach you something here, so you don't say you didn't learn something. It's an eyeball. Uh, the, the, all of the, all the Chinese characters, Japanese is written with Chinese characters. All of them have a, they're all pictures of something. So this is a very stylized picture of an eyeball. You can see yeah, the eyeball in the middle. With a little jeep, I don't know what you call it, a little line on top of it. So, um, so this means self. So it's kind of the, the line on top of the eyeball sort of indicates pointing at the eyeball. Uh, this is to receive and you can, kind of, you can kind of see it. It was originally a drawing of a hand picking up something. So you can kind of see that. If you use your imagination, you can kind of see the hand picking up the thing. So self-receiving and using, and I don't know why this means using, it just means using. It, there's probably a reason. Um, but that, uh, to, to receive and use the self. So that's what that is. And, and all he's saying in the first sentence is, is everybody, all, all, the, all the Buddhas of the past did zazen. They did what we just did uh, for the past 20 minutes. 
contrary to, the, to an idea that a lot of people had that, that they didn't do that. Uh, those who attained enlightenment in India and China followed this way. That's easy. So India and China is the, the places they received Buddhism from. It was done so because teachers and disciples personally transmitted this excellent method as the essence of the true teaching. That's not so bad. In the authentic tradition of our teaching, it is said that this directly transmitted, straightforward Buddha Dharma, so that when he says Buddha Dharma, people usually think of it as philosophy, but he's saying the Buddha Dharma is the practice. This uh, straightforward Buddha Dharma is the unsurpassable of the unsurpassable, the best of the best. From the first time you meet a master, I'm going to just change this on the fly. You no longer need uh, to offer incense, bow, chant Buddha's name, repent, or read scriptures. You should just sit wholeheartedly and drop away body and mind. So the, these, other, these other practices are the, the various forms of Buddhism that were existed in Japan before Dogen's time mostly did these sorts of things, these ritual things, burning incense, bowing, chanting. When even for a moment you express Buddha's seal in the three actions, that means in body, speech, and mind, and expressing the Buddha's seal is a fancy way of saying do zazen, uh, by sitting upright in samadhi, samadhi means meditation, the whole phenomenal world becomes the Buddha's seal, becomes meditation, and the entire sky turns into enlightenment. Well, it'll probably start doing that pretty soon with the lightning. I live in California now. They don't have lightning in California. I kind of miss it. I don't know why. Southern California never, almost never gets lightning. Something about the dryness of the atmosphere or something. Um, because of this, all Buddha Tathagatas, all Buddhas, as the original source, so all Buddha Tathagatas are the original source, they increase their Dharma bliss and renew their magnificence in the awakening of the way. That's a bizarre sentence. I don't remember what I changed that to, but okay. Furthermore, all beings in the ten directions means every direction, and the six realms, including the lower, well, three lower realms. So in, in Buddhism, you don't have like heaven, earth, and hell. You have six realms, so it's like a double. So there's like a bunch of heavens and a bunch of hells, and it's the same idea. Uh, renew their magnificence and awakening, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they all realize the state of great emancipation, great freedom, and manifest the original face. This is a kind of idea in Buddhism, this idea of the original face. Show your original face. At this time, all things realize correct awakening, so everything becomes enlightened. Uh, myriad objects partake of the Buddha body, whatever that means, and sitting upright under the Bodhi tree, which is what Buddha did you immediately leap beyond the boundary of awakening. So there's awakening, but you go beyond it. At this moment, you turn the unsurpassably great Dharma wheel and expound the profound wisdom, ultimate and unconditioned. We'll talk about that later. I just want you to hear it. Because such broad awakening resonates back to you, so this awakening comes back to you and helps you inconceivably, you will, in zazen, unmistakably drop away body and mind. So what you did just now was dropping away body and mind, even if you didn't know it. Cutting off the various defiled thoughts of the past and realize the essential Buddha Dharma. This will raise up Buddha activity at innumerable practice places of Buddha Tathagatas everywhere because everyone, sorry, and cause everyone to have the opportunity of ongoing Buddhahood and vigorously uplift the ongoing Buddha Dharma. So it's really great, and that's, that's my translation of that. Uh, because earth, grass, trees, walls, tiles, and pebbles, which is a thing he does when he means everything, uh, he, he, he likes that list. I'm not sure exactly why he chooses those things, but it means everything. Because they all engage in Buddha activity, those who receive the benefit of wind and water caused by them are inconceivably helped by the Buddha's guidance, splendid and unthinkable, and awaken intimately to themselves. Whoa, that is a long sentence. 
Um, those who receive these water and fire benefits spread the Buddha's guidance based on original awakening. Because of this, all those who live with you and speak with you, so if you do Buddha, if you do uh, Zazen, uh, everyone who lives with you and speaks with you will obtain endless Buddha virtue and will unroll widely and inside, sorry, inside and outside of the entire universe, the endless, unremitting, unthinkable, unnameable Buddha Dharma. Whoa. It's another long sentence. All this, however, does not appear within perception, so you don't know any of this is happening. Because it is unconstructed in stillness, it is immediate realization. So you don't even know this is happening, but it is. If practice and realization were two things, as it appears to an ordinary person, so a lot of people uh, have this idea that they practice Zazen in order to have some experience called realization. He's saying, no, this is, these are not two things. If it were that way, each could be recognized separately. But what can be, and this is another one of these unnecessarily weird sentences, but what can be met with recognition is not realization itself. Basically, you can't recognize your own realization. Because realization is not reached by a deluded mind. In stillness, Mind and object merge in realization, so self and whatever you relate to is one, and go beyond enlightenment. Nevertheless, because you are in the state of self-fulfilling samadhi, without disturbing its quality or moving a particle, you extend the Buddha's great activity, the incomparably profound and subtle teaching. Whatever. Grass trees and lands which are embraced by this teaching together radiate a great light and endlessly expound the inconceivable profound dharma. Grass trees and walls bring forth the teaching for all beings, common people as well as sages, and they all in, sorry, and they in accord extend this dharma for the sake of grass trees and walls. So everything goes out and comes back in. Thus, the realm of self-awakening and awakening others invariably holds the mark of realization with nothing lacking, and realizing itself is manifested without ceasing for a moment. It's almost over. Uh, this being so, the zazen of even one person at one moment imperceptibly, sorry, imperceptibly accords with all things and fully resonates through all time. Thus, in the past, future, and present of the limitless universe, this zazen carries on the Buddha's teaching endlessly. Each moment of zazen is equally wholeness of practice, equally wholeness of realization. So every minute you're sitting zazen, you are fully awakened, whether you know it or not. This is not only practice while sitting, it is like a... Oh, dang. Where's my hammer? Oh, here it is. It is like a hammer striking emptiness. Before and after, its exquisite peel permeates everywhere. So he's talking about a hammer striking nothing, and the ringing extends everywhere because the ringing is silence. How can it be limited to this moment? Because silence is every moment. Hundreds of things all manifest original practice from the original face. It is impossible to measure. Know that even if all the Buddhas of the ten directions, that's every direction, as innumerable as the sands of the Ganges, exert their strength with the Buddha's wisdom, the wisest wisdom there is, if they try to measure the merit of one person's zazen, they will not be able to comprehend it. The end. So this is one of, I'm sorry to bore you with that. I actually find that very interesting, but um, I suppose when you first hear it, it just sounds like crazy talk. Um, it's not crazy talk. It's actually, he's actually trying to say something. And basically he's saying Zazen is the greatest thing ever because it extends throughout the universe whether you know it or not. And this is a weird idea. Uh, it's not the idea that we usually have of meditation, or at least I usually have. Uh, I think most people, if they engage in a meditation practice, like they go to a mindfulness class or something like that, they're engaging in it because they, are, they think they're going to gain something for themselves. They're going to 
be they're going to be mindful. They're going to have better oral hygiene. I don't know what people think they're going to get from a mindful class, a mindfulness class. They're going to have better something. A lot of times it's sold for all sorts of benefits. You, you can find books. Uh, I was at the airport, several airports recently, looking at bookstores while I waited for airplanes. And um, it's amazing how popular this stuff is. It's even in the airport bookstores. There's all these books telling you how great everything's going to be if you meditate for you. You're going to gain things from your meditation. And it's true. You can gain things through meditation. You can become a, a more calm and centered person. You can become more mindful. But that's not why you do it. Not, not according to Dogen. Uh, you're doing it because you're entering into something that already exists. So this is what he's saying. So when you do meditation, you're not you're not try, you're not making benefit for yourself. You're actually kind of getting on a train that's already going somewhere and has been going somewhere for the last 10 billion years. And you're just jumping on it and, and getting with it and getting, getting with this thing. Unfortunately, most of us are missing that train. We're not, we're not even bothering with it. But, uh, but a few people get on that train and go, hey, this has been going on for, for several million years and we can get in on it too. Um, and, and in doing so, you, you do benefit yourself and you do benefit other people who do it. So, this was, I was supposed to talk about Dogen's relevance to the, to the current world and I'll wrap up and then try to get people to ask questions after this. Um, I started doing this when I was like 18 years old and I didn't know what it was. And I did it for all the reasons everybody that I just talked about that everybody does it for. I wanted to get something. I, you know, I was just starting in university and my life was going crazy and I wanted to find a way to hold, hold myself together. And it helped. And I kept doing it. And it was a long time before I understood the full significance of what I had been doing. But I think that this is a really, really profound practice and really, really important. Um, and that's why I do it, and that's why I, I, I come to Vienna and talk to ten people about it. Um, because I think it's important, and I know that not a lot of people are going to be interested in this crazy thing, but somebody's got to start it, and, and unfortunately, we are the ones. <laughs> You're in it too now, uh, whether you like it or not. And, and I think that this practice will be profoundly important to the world. I don't know where things are going. I hope... I hope things are getting better. Uh, you can look at the news, and I, 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 uh, I was away. I, I, when I did this retreat, I, there was no internet access, thank God. And so I didn't see Twitter or anything for, for a week. And, and I have, always, when I'm traveling, I always have bad internet access anyway, so I can't get on it very fast, so I get frustrated easily, and I don't look very often. You know, then I came back, but then I got uh, access and I started looking. And I'm going, oh, everybody's going crazy still. Um, you know, apparently Donald Trump is locking little uh, Latino boys and girls in cages like dogs. I, I don't know, something about that. Um, you know, whatever the new thing that, that people are, are going crazy about on, on social media. And it's not that these problems don't exist. I'm not saying these problems don't exist. But what I'm saying is there's something else going on. And this, this undercurrent is what I am trying to be part of. This, this, this little tiny wave of people going, you know, you don't have to be like that. You don't have to, you don't have to keep looking at your little phone and getting upset all day. Uh, there is a different way to live. And, and I think that if we really want to solve these serious world problems, I think more people have to find a way to get out of that cycle of, of just 
getting all upset about everything and ah, and, and having a fit because there's a picture they saw on the internet and oh my god I gotta write about it and tell their friends ah oh, look what's happening over there and then look at this picture and, and you know and just yelling and then getting drunk because they can't stand all the all the stuff that they've been thinking about all day you know they're just going crazy thinking about this you know all the things that they saw on Twitter this morning and Facebook and whatever, and um, then you have to get drunk to try to forget it, and then you go back, and then you got to do a job, and you and, and and all this is going on, and you never have a moment when you're just trying to get a little bit clear, and and that's what I learned from my teacher was doing this practice every day and spending a few minutes every day just trying to take away all of the stimulation and get a little bit, a little tiny bit clear. And, and that's why I do it. Uh, I don't know why you do it, but, uh, <laughs> but that's my thing. So I'm probably crazy. Any questions? <laughs> I should have been like this yesterday, but uh, I don't know, it just didn't feel like the time for it. Sorry, I sound like an evangelist. Did that just sound like a crazy person yelling for 30 minutes? I don't know how long you yelled. I think I yelled for about 30 minutes. I started at 8.12 and now it's 8.42, so yeah, about exactly 30 minutes of, of yelling about Dogen. Was that easy? Was that hard to understand? I'm, I'm trying to be really clear, and but I don't know if I'm. Um... So if anyone was, so this is the major Zen text essentially. So if you're getting into Zen meditation, is it the one thing that you have to learn? How important is the like in connection to the meditation? Or is it just because he mentions that if you do zazen, then essentially you? Well, in in the yeah, it's in the overall scheme of things, probably the most important text in Zen is also, it's even shorter than this, it's called the Heart Sutra, and it has the famous line, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, and that's something with all, in all of the Zen schools, they, uh, they chant probably as their main thing that they talk about, and, and they, they actually recite it, stuff. This is, uh, this is Dogen writing for his people. So within Soto Zen, this is very important. So this is a little bit sectarian. And I think the Rinzai people, um, certain of the Rinzai teachers also have a, an, a strong admiration for Dogen. So he's, he's kind of crosses the boundaries there of, between the two major types of Zen Buddhism. At least the two major types. Yeah, I guess the two major types of Zen Buddhism in Japan, I was going to say, but even in China there. They're usually one or the other of these, except the Soto is much more strong in Japan and very weak in China. So, so yeah, as far as, as far as Dogen is concerned, the thing about Dogen is he was very... Zen Buddhism literally means meditation Buddhism. So there were different forms of Buddhism where they do different things as their main practice, like the Jodo Shinshu, they, they, chant, they, they chant Namu Amida Butsu. And the Nichiren sect, they have another chant, which is Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, which means praise to the Lotus Sutra. Uh, so uh, that's their main thing. But the Zen people, their main thing is Zazen, is this, is this Zen practice. And of course, I'm part of that movement. And so I'm going to, I'm going to say what they say, which is that if you look at the history of Buddha, this is what the Buddha did. It's, it, I, I don't think you can really argue that. Uh, wh what usually happens with uh, other forms of Buddhism is they argue that, oh, well, Buddha meditated, but it was too hard, and, and we don't have to meditate because you know, ordinary people can't meditate. Buddha was special. But I, I, don't, I don't think... If you look at his, his life story, that does not seem to be what he went around India saying. He was teaching people to meditate, everybody. Anybody who wanted to learn his style of meditation, he would, he would teach it to them. So, so it wasn't that he was saying, I'm special and you guys can't do this. Um, but there are forms of Buddhism that, that sort of take that as their stance. Um, 
So yeah, so so this this particular text is very important in Soto, and it's it's often uh, uh, used, and and he's trying to say, he he's saying something that is is significant in that makes him a bit different, which is a lot of times even with in other types of Zen Buddhism, they teach that you do zazen for a purpose, and that purpose is to have an experience called enlightenment. So, so you do zazen until you have this experience, and maybe you continue doing zazen after. But the purpose of doing zazen is to have this experience called enlightenment. I, I, I think that's wrong, and Dogen certainly thought that was wrong. He said that zazen is enlightenment. So enlightenment is something that is, is already there, and by doing zazen, you kind of. Like I said about the train, you kind of jump on the enlightenment train for 20 minutes, and then jump off at the next stop, uh, and and do whatever else you need to do. Uh, but you don't do zazen to have an experience called enlightenment. The 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 other part of that is if you do zazen for a while, most people eventually start having some interesting experiences. But those experiences are. They're useful and they are educational, and nothing wrong with it. But I don't think those experiences are enlightenment. Those are just sort of the scenery that you see when you jump on that train for a little while. You know, you're going, "Oh, look at that thing!" Um, but they're not. They're not. Uh, they're nothing else than that. But you can get. You can get caught up in those experiences. I. I am a case in, in point. Of a person who almost everybody has a story like that, where they got caught up in some experience that they had on as an outcome of doing this practice, and uh, and had to be told, stop. <laughs> it's like you scored the big goal in the football match in in uh, high school, and you just won't shut up about it, and that's kind of that's kind of what people who have these experiences are like, and un- unfortunately. Some people don't understand that, and then they get groups around them. They go and they tell their story of scoring the big goal over and over and over and over, and hundreds of people and thousands of people go, "Oh, you scored the big goal!" And yes, I scored the big goal, and I was in high school, and you know, and that's and and that just goes on and on and on. Um, but uh, but what you, that's not the point of this. The point of this is to to. If you do that, that's losing the present moment. The, the, the moment that you had the big experience is, is passes, and then um, if you kind of try to keep reliving that, you're, you're missing your life. So, that was you it. practice this sort of practice not reaching anything. Yeah. But I wonder, because you were saying that the way I was saying, so you actually don't realize, so if you, like enlightenment is already practiced, yeah. you just realize it when you're within. Yeah. How did he realize that? Well, he, he, you know, he interestingly, he never really claims that he realized it. Uh, he, he keeps saying that you can't realize it. I would say, based on my own life story, that there are moments when it's sort of like the, the clouds part, and you go, oh, look, there's a sky up there, you know, but um, you, you still, it's still not... What you realize is something is 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 uh, is that you're playing a part in something much bigger that you'll never understand, and that you just have to kind of go, well, I'm, I'm not going to understand that. But knowing knowing that it's there is nice. Uh, so so I don't I don't um, I think there's value in that. I don't think it's nothing, but. Um, but that's not uh, the point of the practice, and and it's kind of like saying even when there's clouds, there's still a sky behind those clouds. Uh, you just uh, you just can't see it right now, and and that's what he's kind of saying about delusion. So so I suppose Do- Dogen talks about dropping off body and mind, and he he uses this phrase a lot, and he expresses that when he was sitting in China with his teacher. For the first time, he dropped body and mind, and then he had a conversation with his teacher. And his at 
at, as a result of that conversation, his teacher gave him a certificate and said, go back to Japan and, and teach this. You're ready to teach this. Um, but it's not like that was the final cap of everything. It was just, it was just a moment when he kind of uh, solved, my, my teacher used to say, solved philosophical problems. That was his phrase. I have Yeah, I, I like that question. Why is the posture important? Um, I, I have my theory, and I'll just tell you. Um, it's it's this this practice is as much a physical practice as a mental one. So we are recognizing that body and mind are one unit. So we usually separate that, and we say that the mind does something while the body does something else. But if you actually pay attention to real life, that's not what happens. So you, in order to make your mind work properly, you have to make your body also work properly. The, the position of the legs, I think, is not that important. The, the leg position like this helps create a stable base. It's very difficult, I've tried to do this sitting on a chair, uh, but, but you can, if you, if you work on it, uh, do it sitting on a chair, and there are other ways to arrange your legs. But the, the main thing is to try to have an unsupported back. And, and my little theory about that, and I don't know if this is medically proven or anything, but if you look at human beings, we're really strange uh, among the animals. We do something that no other animal that we know about does, which is we walk upright on two legs with a spine that's almost completely straight up and down. Uh, birds walk on two legs, but their spine is, is curved forward. They used to think dinosaurs stood like us, but now they've discovered that they were wrong, that dinosaurs actually stood more like birds, you know, with that with the tail balancing the back and everything. So they were like that. Kangaroos also uh, do that. The, the apes walk mostly on their knuckles. They don't, they don't stand up. They can stand up, but they don't uh, often do it. So we do this strange thing. And, and I think that that may be very significant in making us what we are, which is this weird animal, because we have the, we have the hands completely free to do other things, which, is, which has created all of this, you know. Chimpanzees don't, you know, they can, they can do stuff with their hands, but mostly their hands are feet uh, most of the time. And so it's not quite the same where they use them for climbing and things, but they're not manipulating stuff with them. Uh, so we do that, and, and, and so I think this, this straight spine is a uniquely human property that, that we do, and if we want to be human, we, we do this, this, this thing uh, of keeping the, the spine straight and just holding it there. And, and I think this, it's really important to do it in this posture because I've tried. I've actually tried to see if... There, there's some study that came out a few years ago, and I saw it on the internet, and it annoyed me because it said, well, we've done studies that prove that sitting in a chair watching TV is exactly the same as meditation. You know, they'll, they'll, they, they came up with some study... Uh, that, that proved this, and I don't know, they, they probably checked blood pressure and some other factors or whatever they think is significant. I can tell you, I have sat on comfy chairs watching TV and I've done zazen and they're not the same at all. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Uh, something else is going on that, that just doesn't happen when you're, when you're just kind of laying back and and, and and I see people in meditation classes on these little chairs that lay back, but I've tried meditating in those little chairs that lay back, and I just kind of get 
you know, spaced out and it might be kind of pleasant, but it's not, it's not zazen because zazen is, a, is, my teacher used to call it a practice that's halfway between tension and relaxation. So, so there's a relax aspect to it because you're not doing anything. You're staying still and you're kind of just letting everything um, kind of be as it is. But, you, but you're also making an effort to do that. So you're not, you know, when you lay back, you kind of just let gravity have you completely. But this, this way you're making an effort, but you're also relaxing into the effort that you're making. So that's why I think the posture is important. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think it's really important. And, and when I, I used to do this, when, when I started teaching Zazen, because I was kind of a, more of an asshole, even even more of an asshole then than I am now. I w- just wouldn't tell people what to do with their minds. I would just t- I would describe, like I would do this instruction like I did uh, earlier today, and I'd just describe what to do with your body, and then I'd ring the bell. You know, I wouldn't say anything about let your thoughts go or any of that. I'd just say sit still like this. Ding. Okay. And let people figure out what to do because I think it's that's a little bit like teaching somebody to swim by throwing them in the water and here you go swim. Uh, and I, I kind of liked that, but now I try to be nice to people. So that's why I think the posture is important because you're you're acting out this 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 human thing. And I, I actually think humans are important. Uh, we're, we're I think we're. We're in a confused... I think we're starting maybe just a little bit to emerge from a long period of being really, really confused about what we are. And I hope we're, we're entering into that. I mean, there, there's evidence both ways that it may just collapse uh, still, but um, I like to believe that we're entering into it and trying to find out what we really are and trying to find a balance between us and the rest of the planet and, and make that work uh, so, that, so that we can all share this place after we are admittedly screwed it up pretty bad but, um, but not, not yet beyond salvation you know, we've, we've still got something going on here and we may be able to, to make that work and, and there are things we can do. And this is, this is me being silly, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. There are things we can do that no other animal has ever been able to do. Which is, for example, uh, we know now that the dinosaurs became extinct because a big rock <laughs> fell out of the sky and ruined the whole planet. Uh, we are the only creatures in the history of, of this planet, in the four billion years of this planet, that actually has a chance to figure out how to make something like that not happen. You know, how to, how to protect the planet from things like that. Uh, we could be the ones who, who can do that on behalf of everybody. You know, on behalf of the whales and the uh, dolphins and the apes and, and everybody. We could, we could possibly do things that, uh, that could keep this, this whole project going uh, longer. Planets that are stable enough to support intelligent life, we don't know because we haven't been able to research it very well, but there's a lot of people speculating now, and there seems to be evidence, some small evidence, that planets like this are extraordinarily rare. Um, that you need a lot of factors to be perfectly balanced in order to have a planet where you can have animal life on it, and any kind of animal life. And, and we've got one, and maybe, again, this is me being speculative, maybe our role is to help extend the life of this place uh, and, and make it keep on working uh, for a longer period than it might have worked otherwise without something like us on it. But again, we're, we're, we're using that ability to, I don't know, build sports cars 
that are red so we can impress teenage girls or something, or I don't know, you know what, stupid things that we're, we're using these incredible abilities and we're pouring all of our abilities into doing, you know, kind of ridiculous things. Um, because ultimately we are just chimpanzees anyway um, who, who figured out how to make cars and televisions and, and computers. And we use them to do the same things that chimpanzees would do if they figured out how to use television or make televisions and computers and things. Um, but we could we could be better if we if we worked at it. And and I'd like to think that ten people in a room in Vienna are are um, part of of that. You know, ten people here, and the thirty people I talked to in, in, last night, and the, the the thirty more people I talked to in in Finland uh, last week, and. Uh, people I'm going to talk to in Munich this weekend, this coming weekend, and people I talk to in America, and people other Zen teachers are talking to, and other meditation teachers are talking to. I think we're, we're trying to move this project in a better direction, this human project. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sounding weird. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I just take over a bit in something that I really like, especially from the first book, that you can say take over responsibility of what we're doing. Yeah. Essentially also questioning things. And, and what I definitely like in, in Zen meditation that you are very like open. So it's not that someone is saying you need to have, like in certain ways, you have some teachers saying you need to have to do that. Yeah. But you're very open in other ways to discover it for yourself. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think it's a very important development because I think many, you know, that like to be leaded. Uh, it's always, that can be kind of tricky, depending yeah. on that, so taking over responsibility of what we're doing, what we're thinking, yeah. is very important, especially in the way you say. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you brought up like a, a bunch of things just now in that statement, but I think they're all really interesting because there is a, we're trying to do something here which is, which is trying to open up this practice universally, including including for people who uh, might not quite understand what it is, you know, yet, but they can do it too, and, and that's fine. I, like I said, I did it for 10 years, at least 15 years, maybe, not knowing what the hell it was for, you know, but, but I had a teacher who kindly uh, let me keep doing it. So you don't have to really know much. Uh, to do this practice, eventually you'll start to learn what it is if you keep working at it. Uh, so, so there is a there is a sense of guidance, and it's kind of like what I was telling you before before this class. But I'll say it for everybody. Um, my my teacher, my the teacher who ordained me was I, I thought he was very arrogant because he was very he would say zazen is the one true way, and he was very you know sort of forceful about this. But then I started to realize, well, he's not saying Zazen is the one true way, burn down the synagogues and churches. And he, he, he was saying that this is, he had, he had extreme confidence in this way. And I think, I think it's hard to, to want to, to listen to a teacher who doesn't have that kind of confidence. A teacher should have that confidence. But it also means I'm, I'm perfectly open to there might be other ways to do this, but uh, but I know this way, and and I'm I'm going to stick with teaching it, you know, and and there might be other ways for other people. I also think it's important. I think you brought this up too, uh, to be really honest about it, to 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 say, okay, well, I don't just believe this, you know, I don't just blindly accept that my teacher told me to do it, and and there's a holy scripture out there that says it's right. I, I want to know for myself if it's right. And I don't want to hold beliefs that are based on nothing, that are based on just useless um, old stories and things. Even Buddha says this in a, I wish I could quote it directly, but there's a, a sutra called the Kalama Sutra. And there are these people called the Kalamas. That's why it's called the Kalama Sutra. And he's going and talking to them, and they come up and say, you know, a lot of guys have been saying their, their form of meditation is right, and their book is holy, and, and they come through here every day, a new one comes by, and what should we believe, Buddha? You know, they're asking him. And he says, don't, 
don't just believe something because you've heard it, and don't believe something because it's tradition or because a great teacher said it, or or you know, for any of these reasons. Do it because you have done the practice and you can see for yourself that it's right. And that's not exactly what he says, but it's close enough. And I really, I really like that approach. It's, it's, it's. I think one of the most important things that that the Buddha said uh, was this. This, if you want to go look it up, just Kalama, K-A-L-A-M-A. If you look it up online somewhere, you can find the full text of this sermon that he gave. And and I, and I think we have to be honest with ourselves, and we have to say, well, is this true? Is this real? Is this actually beneficial? You know? And if it's not, you just go, I'll, I'll stop doing it. My own experience was every time I stopped doing it, I found out why it was beneficial. <laughs> I said this yesterday, but I, I uh, did, uh, I did Zazen initially because I had a teacher and stuff, but I wasn't committed to it. I, I just, I just, I thought it was a fun thing to do, a little experiment. And maybe after the first year of doing it, or two years, I don't know, I just said, okay, well, I'm finished with that. I'm gonna, I don't need to do that anymore. And then, every, and then I'd stop, and then I'd go, oh, I need to do that again. <laughs> you know, I, I found out what was useful. And I did that a few times. I just decided I would quit, and, and uh, it always drew me back in. And, uh, and that's when I realized, oh, there, there's something going on here. There's something in this practice, even, even though I wasn't having any great experiences or anything. I was just doing this day after day. Day after day. How long are we going? It's 2107. Sure, we might be enlightened, but it might it might be it might be shocking after all this darkness. Everybody's falling asleep because I'm so boring. I'm sorry to bore you for so long. So I don't know because like yesterday you gave like a short intro about essentially your path yeah. being like you know even a musician, punk musician, and all everything that kind of came up. The thing um, perhaps a lot of people might be interested in knowing how you can combine the two. So seeing you know punk in a way and then you have Zen Buddhism and how does it fit together and how does it fit for you? So if you want to just say yeah about that. Yeah, I don't know how. I know, I know how it fits for me, but I don't know if it works for everyone. But when I first started this Zazen practice, I was the bass player for a hardcore punk band called Zero Defects. And I got into the punk scene because I, I wanted to look for something that was true and honest. And I felt like, and I, and I wanted to find it in music. And I felt like the only true and honest music at the time uh, was punk rock because people were actually saying something real and and kind of being themselves and I, I wanted to be part of that and and when I discovered Zen I thought oh these people are just like the punks only they're taking it all the way you know they're going the whole way instead of just stopping at a at a certain pose and a certain kind of you know style uh, they they took it all the way. The, the other aspect of it, somebody had asked last night if you can't just find this same state of balance by doing athletics. He mentioned track running and pumping iron and things. And actually, my teacher used to talk about that because he was a, before he started doing Zazen, he was a track runner. It's my track runner. Uh, in high school, I, I think he was actually pretty good. I don't think he won any prizes, but he was good at it. And um, he found this this wonderful state of openness where he lost his sense of self and, and kind of felt like he was melting into the world somehow through running. And, and he started to find that also in Zazen practice. And he said Zazen was much easier <laughs> than, than running was. Um, and so that's why he stuck with the Zazen. Uh, and and I, just, I also found that with playing there are moments, uh, 
in I think most musicians have this experience every once in a while where things just come together in a performance. It hardly ever happens in a rehearsal. It usually has to happen with an audience. But things come together and the musician, myself, I just disappear. It's, it's hard. It, it, it feels like it's really like that. I mean, I know that there's some guy doing all of this, but my whole sense of self is gone. And, and this enormous sense of all of us together doing something which is, of which music is one part uh, becomes, uh, becomes very clear. But as a musician, to get to that point is very difficult, you know. There's, you've got to carry these amplifiers up the stairs, and you've got to talk to some guy about getting the gig and how much the bar gets and how much you get, and, and there's, you know, you fight with the drummer over some stupid thing, and uh, there's all kinds of things that have to happen in order for, to create this moment that might not even happen. You know, most performances, it doesn't happen. But you know, one in every ten performances, or something, if you're lucky, you have you have this moment when everything is is very clear, and I think that's why a lot of musicians do it. Uh, a lot of musicians don't talk about it. There's a few. There's a few who talk about it. Uh, Robert Fripp from King Crimson is one I know who, who's a, King Crimson's a prog rock band, a British prog rock band, and he talks about it sometimes, and and some people. Some, some people are just not able to articulate it, but they do talk about it, or they try to. Um, so that you can find it in other places. And for me, that's how it fit in. The, the punk rock is sort of almost arbitrary that it happened to be punk rock and not something else. I, I liked it because it was honest and because I liked the, the point of view that the punks had of, of trying to... It seemed like everybody else was trying to ignore the... the real state of the world and and there was this little band of people who were going, hey <laughs> we gotta do something and luckily that's expanded out into other forms of music now so it's not so it's not so much, so punk rock is <laughs> less necessary now than it, I mean it's probably necessary for the kids who do it these days but um, but uh, I don't think it's uh, it's not exactly what it used to be which is fine, uh, you know. It's still fun for people who do it, and we still play Zero Defects. We got back together uh, a few years ago, and we still about once a year we we get together and do a show, and it's 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 good. Uh, yeah. So that's where it fits for me. It doesn't have to be that, you know. It can be something else. I'd like to connect uh, to what you said uh, about uh, musician um, getting into this kind of, of flow yeah. attitude. Um, is it is, is what you mean? That, that sometimes they call it flow, you can have your work, you can have your Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was trying to figure out myself if, if this is the same that happens uh, while meditating. It can be. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's... I, I, I actually think meditation may be a little bit similar to being a musician in that not every time you do it do you find the flow of it. But I, I think, like Dogen says, the flow is there whether you notice it or not. And, and so you, you kind of uh, hope. But I, I also try not to judge my meditation. I used to judge my meditation very strongly because I feel like, oh, this time nothing, you know, it was just a lot of stupid thoughts and I didn't get into it. But um, I think it's important not to, to just, well, you can judge your meditation, but just don't believe your judgment, you know, don't believe that you're right about it. You might think it was terrible, but maybe in some other sense it wasn't. I remember one retreat I did, and it was Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is in the north, and it was really cold. I think it was in February. It was snowing, and we couldn't leave this place where we, we were doing this. And I don't know what was going on in my life at the time. I don't really remember. But I, I realized halfway through this retreat 
that the best I was going to be able to do in this retreat is sit still. And nothing magical or flow or anything like that was going to happen. I was just going to, if I could sit still for the three or four days that we decided to do this retreat, then that, that was successful. And actually, what I discovered that after that retreat was that it seemed like that I, something happened there that I wasn't aware of until like a week later. And, and I realized, oh, that was actually a really good retreat. Even though while I was doing it, it felt like, you know, this is my mind is just bubbling up with whatever was going on. I, like I say, I can't remember. And, you know, just, just sitting still was, was the hardest thing. Every period of meditation felt like it lasted forever. You know, and every time I was there going, ring the goddamn bell. <laughs> you know, and I've only been doing it for five minutes. I'm going, come on, ring the bell. Ring the bell. <laughs> it just felt like that for, for three days or four, three or four days. I don't remember how long that one was. Um, which is, which is a nightmare, you know? <laughs> Imagine just, four, you know, eight hours a day, every day for four days, going, ah, I hate this. Um, and I was actually, this is one of the first retreats I was leading, so maybe that was why I was having <laughs> so much trouble. So I was actually the leader of this retreat, the guy in the robes sitting up front and telling everybody what to do. yourself. <laughs> Hmm? Could you have found the better yourself? Yeah, I should have. Yeah. <laughs> but, but actually, that's, actually that's um, usually you give that to, maybe that's why, I know that I think about it. Usually you give that job to somebody else, so, so the leader actually doesn't ring the bell normally in a Zen retreat. Uh, the bell ringer is somebody else in the group. All right, that's what I said to the people of Vienna back in 2018. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it and you want to make a contribution, please go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main ways of making a living, and I appreciate your support. But as I said right at the beginning... This is offered for free, so you don't got to pay if you don't want to pay. We'll see you again. <laughs> Have a good time all the time. <laughs> Whatever I always say. Bye-bye.